This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Bearden is being mobbed as our rule will draw. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians, third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome back to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. I am your host, Cleveland Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. We have an exciting episode for you this week. We're going to talk about Ray Chapman and in this podcast, I was fortunate enough to interview Mike Sowell, and if the name sounds familiar, he is the author of The Pitch That Killed, which is, for me, you know, one of my, my top baseball books, and if you haven't had a chance to read it, I'd say pick it up. It's the story of Ray Chapman and Carl Mays and that fateful day uh, at the Polo Grounds in 1920, and he does a great job chronicling everything that that led up to that moment and the events after. So throughout this podcast, you're going to hear uh, parts of my conversation with Mike. I'm also very excited to do an episode on Ray Chapman. There's a certain, I think, cliff notes of Cleveland Indians history that if you're not into uh, baseball history as much as, say, I am or any hardcore uh, baseball aficionado, I guess, a lot of people still know Ray Chapman, and like I said, the cliff notes of Cleveland Indians history, uh, you know, named after Nat Blagway for a time, then the 20s and won a World Series, Ray Chapman gets hit, then fans will know of 48 and Feller, as well as Larry Doby, 
then with uh, Frank Robinson, and then the 90s. And that's, again, the uh, the cliff note version of Cleveland Indians history, but Ray Chapman holds such a uh, monumental part in that history. And unfortunately, it's not necessarily for... Um, you know, his his play, most people remember him because he was uh, killed. He was the last professional baseball player to be killed on the field um, as a result of a, a pitched ball. So that is why Ray gets remembered. And he actually was a, a fan favorite of the time. Uh, people loved him, and it was just absolutely devastating when this uh, event happened. So hopefully we can shed some light on uh, Ray before the accident and, um, you know, bring some more appreciation as we get close to that 100-year anniversary of his death. There's an interest in Ray, too. I think every year I at least get one or two uh, requests, whether they're from a, a National History Day student or um, someone asking questions uh, about Ray and the situation. Um, so there definitely is an interest. If you go to Lakeview Cemetery, there's always um, baseballs or hats or, or mementos left at his gravesite, and usually a local paper will cover that and, and have a photo of it, or or it, it will pop up on Twitter um, on the anniversary. So it's one of those baseball events that... Um, is still remembered and, um, you know, fans still remember that. It's such a, a big piece of baseball trivia. And uh, interestingly enough, that's kind of what led uh, Mike Soule to write about Ray. Uh, I was One of the questions I asked him was, you know, you're not a Clevelander, not necessarily, at least at the time, was an Indians fan. What kind of got you interested in the Ray Chapman story? And this was his response. Uh, I got interested in baseball when I was 10 years old. And that was back in the late 1950s. <clears throat> so uh, I read a lot of baseball books. And one of them was a, a book about uh, strange sports incidents. And they had a, a section or a page on the Ray Chapman beating. And, of course, it was filled with incorrect information about how this the fatal beating took place uh, with, you know, it was uh, the second inning. He was the second batter. There were two outs. The count was two and two. And none of that was true. But it fascinated me about Ray Chapman being the only player ever killed in a game. I think that's a great example, too, of how people still come across the story of Ray Chapman. It's just in these footnotes or these random did-you-know sections of newspapers or books or um, tweets or wherever. And, you know, there's there's such a, a prevalence of, of that stuff floating around with misinformation. And uh, to Mike's credit, he was a sports writer and, and decided he wanted to uh, – get into that topic and it hadn't been uh hadn't been really deeply researched yet and again bigger picture that's what's kind of beautiful about the indians history is that there's so much of our history that hasn't been uh uh written about or looked into yeah the 20 team the 48 and the 90s get a lot of of attention but there's such a deep well of history and we're just starting to uncover a lot of it now, anyone can go to Baseball Reference and see 
you know, Ray was born in 1891 in Kentucky or, you know, how many hits he had as a rookie. But I was kind of interested in anything Mike found doing his research uh, so long ago about Ray's formative years growing up. But I did travel to his home in you know, where he grew up in Kentucky. And um, mostly he grew up in Heron, Illinois. His father was a coal miner. He came from very... You know, Ray came from a very poor family, but he was always a, a star athlete and a baseball player. And, um, you know, to read about those early years, it required going to those towns and reading the archives of the old newspapers. But, you know, Ray was always a, a outstanding ball player, very fast, uh, very flashy fielder, but most of all, what he everyone commented on was his great personality and his 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 joy at living. Uh, he was kind of the guy who one manager said, even if he couldn't play, he'd have been valuable as a cheerleader on the bench, and that held true until he got to Cleveland. Ray's name starts to pop up in the Cleveland Plain Dealer around August of 1912. It's mentioned that the Naps were going to get shortstop Ray Chapman from Toledo and maybe another player. But it mentioned that Ray was not a star, but a fairly consistent man in his department. Next day, it mentions that he actually had a pretty good year so far. He was batting 329 with 92 runs scored and 45 bases stolen. He was the, the star of his, his league. By December, the newspaper was saying that both him and Doc Johnston were making good in a Cleveland uniform. We mentioned Doc in the, a previous episode as uh, one of the guys on that 1920 team as well. As Mike said, Ray was a, a guy that he was easy to get along with and, and people loved him and he just had one of those personalities. And you see that in the newspaper articles, one from 1913 mentioned how he was having a rough day in, in the field, but the fans were still giving him support. And he said, had the fans got after me today, I don't know where I would have thrown the ball, but with them helping me, I just had to settle down. And the title of the article was, fans are Chapman's friends for life just because they cheered him along. So he had a, a personality that was um, the defining uh, aspect of him that he was just a likable guy and uh, uh, now we call a good clubhouse guy. Here, Mike elaborates. He was probably the the single most popular baseball player among other players at that time. He didn't have any enemies, um, opponents, teammates. They all loved him. Uh, He was a always in a good mood. He was the type of person who, when he came into a room, he kind of lightened it up and, and everyone's attention was drawn to him. He, he was uh, really talented. He had a great uh, voice. Uh, great. He was, he was the guy who led the team in singing and just uh, kind of a cheerleader. And he was also such a flashy fielding player that uh, he's probably like the Aussie Smith of his day as far as his fielding. Uh, made a lot of spectacular plays. The fans loved him. Uh, he was the best bunner in baseball, and he still holds the record for the most sacrifice hits. 1912, 
Uh, Ray plays 31 games, but as the seasons progress, he he puts more and more time. He has a few injuries here and there. He breaks his uh, his ankle or his leg uh, sliding one year. Uh, but I get a fairly consistent and sturdy ball player. And time goes on, he's developing a, a life for himself. He ends up meeting his wife, uh, Kathleen Daly. Her father was, uh, I believe, president of East Ohio Gas. So Ray was possibly thinking of life after baseball, maybe even as early as that 1920 season. He's you know, reaching that age, he'll be 20, he's 29 that year, of how many more years of baseball do you have left? That kind of adds to the the tragic tale of all this. He recently got married and his wife becomes pregnant. So he's got this great life going for him. But as we all know, the, the story does not take a happy turn. And here is Mike's take on Ray Chapman. As most you know, people who follow that or read about that Indians team know that there was some talk that he was going to retire at the end of that season. You know, he had uh, you know from this early beginning as the son of a coal miner, he had risen into Cleveland high society by marrying Kathleen Daly, who was the daughter of one of the uh, wealthiest businessmen in Cleveland. So, and at the time. Uh, you know, the 1920 season, Kathleen had gotten pregnant, and uh, Mr. Daly was building a house for the newlyweds. And so it was a, a great period or a great time in Ray Chapman's life. And, uh, you know, so much was coming together for him. And all of this before that tragic ending out on the ballpark in, in uh, New York. And two things about that. One, if you're interested, the house that uh, Ray's father-in-law was building for them actually ended up uh, being built. It still stands today. It's near Lakeview Cemetery, which is kind of um, you know ironic, I guess, considering that's where Ray ends up being buried. But as something that I'm you know interested in for my job, it's finding these connections to our past and the house that. Ray and his wife and, you know, that happily ever after was supposed to happen is is still standing and you can actually go see it. But another point is, and I this is what I asked Mike, is were these stories of Ray wanting to retire after 1920 true? I mean, was it something that was going on in the in the papers? Obviously, hindsight's 2020. So you could make the story a lot sadder when you interject the fact that, Hey, he was going to retire. And obviously he was, he was passed away by then. So you couldn't really ask him if that was true. So this is a uh, Mike's response to that question. There, it was in the newspapers. There actually was a feeling that he might retire, but I don't think he would have. I mean, he was at the peak of his career. He was having a great season uh, Bill James has speculated on what might have happened had Chapman lived, had this beaning not happened, and that um, Ray was the best of all of those great shortstops, you know, a few of whom ended up in the Hall of Fame. And it, it's pretty definite that Ray Chapman would be in the Hall of Fame today had it not been this tragic ending. The other thing is that he, he was a, a good hitter, he was the fastest player in the league or actually the fastest in baseball back then. And uh, he was in the prime of his career 
1920 was when the lively ball era started where the you know the batting statistics took a big jump forward so ray would have benefited from that and his record would have been outstanding you know certainly better than the, uh, his contemporaries at shortstop so it, it's hard to say definitely that he he would have kept playing or he would have retired but i, I lean toward the fact that he, he was not going to retire after cleveland winning its first pennant and championship and with that, we're going to move on to the actual game at the Polo Grounds in August, and I'll let Mike set the stage for that. Well, it was a, a critical game. The Indians had uh, been in a, a kind of a, a three-team race. The, you know, the, White, the Chicago White Sox, the, you know, the basically the Black Sox team from 1919 was still together, and they had a great team. And the Yankees with Babe Ruth – now on the team, they'd gotten him from the Red Sox um, in 1918. So it, it was three-team race, but the Indians at one point had a big lead in midsummer, and then they they hit a bad stretch. It became a, a tight three-team race, and the Indians went to New York for a critical uh, road trip that would start with a, a series against the Yankees. So. It was a big game, and it was the, the first game of the series. It was uh, August 16, and by chance, Carl Mays, uh, the Yankees manager, Bill Miller Huggins, revised his pitching order to get Mays to pitch the opening game of the series you know, with so much at stake. And coincidentally, Mays also was going for his 100th win that day. And that game featured Stan Kovaleski pitching for the Indians. And between Kovaleski and Mays, it was a pretty tight game. The Tribe was up 3 nothing going into the top of the fifth with uh, Ray Chapman coming to bat. Ray had gone over two so far in the game. He had uh, two outs, both by bunt. So wasn't having a great game at bat. Mike points out another fascinating coincidence uh, regarding Chapman that took place on that day. And another coincidence was the day of the game was uh, a uh, book on baseball instruction for young players, you know, for children had come out and the author had chosen Ray Chapman as the ideal batter in his batting stance because he, uh, it enabled him to, you know, stay at the plate and and wait for a while, you know, wait on the pitch. You know, he was able to get out of the way of a pitch. So it was uh, speculated he would be the hardest player to be hit by pitch in the game. And the other half of this combination is Carl Mays, the pitcher for the Yankees. Um, Mike describes the way that Mays pitch was this really low submarine style pitching, but with, with power behind it. And here is Mike's description of Carl. Uh, a submarine pitcher. So he threw underhanded. He had had an arm injury in the minor leagues. And although you know the submarine pitchers since then are the underhand pitchers, usually were soft pitchers, but Mays was a power pitcher still. Bill James said he was the only one of the underhand pitchers in baseball history, he was still a power pitcher. And Mays, when he would pitch, his pitching hand, he was right-handed, 
and his knuckles would scrape the ground. Was, that's how far down he was getting when he would throw. So the ball was coming in from an unusual angle, and Mays was able to put a lot of movement on the ball, so it took a lot of unusual twists and turns. And there's a perfect storm, so to speak. You have Chapman up, uh, kind of crowding the plate. You have a baseball that hasn't been rotated out like we have today, and it's a little bit of an overcast day, so it's a little hard to pick up on the ball. And you have this pitcher that's just got a uh, a unique uh, delivery that you, it's not something you see every day. So uh, perhaps the stars were aligned against Ray Chapman for uh, for that situation. And here's Mike Soul's description of the uh, events of that day. But on this day, when uh, Chapman came up, uh, he was in the batter's box. Mays was thinking he was going to try to bunt. So Mays was throwing inside. But according to the catcher, Muddy Rule, this particular pitch came in and it was taking unusual turns. But uh, Muddy Rule said that the pitch was in the strike zone. It would have been a called strike. But Chapman, as he always did, he was crowding the plate, and he had, according to rule, Chapman's head was actually leaning over the plate in the strike zone. Of course, now that can be disputed, but um, the pitch came in, and it was inside, or it was coming toward Chapman's head, and for some reason, he froze. He didn't make any movement to get out of the way of the pitch. And a, a former Cleveland ball player who had... Uh, been seriously beamed a few years earlier, had talked about that experience. And he said that on those occasions, you see the ball coming, you know it's going to hit you, but you're fascinated by it. And it's like a snake, a deadly snake about to strike you. And you're just paralyzed. You see what's going to happen, but you can't move to prevent it. So that was what some people thought happened to Chapman. Others speculate he lost the ball in the you know, the background that he, he couldn't pick up the the ball very well, but whatever the ball did hit him in the head, it hit with such force that there was a loud crack and the ball bounded back out to the pitcher's mound. So Mays thinking it was that the ball had hit the bat, you know, fielded it and threw to first base. Wally Pip was playing first base for the Yankees. He's turned to throw the ball around the infield, and then they noticed that something was wrong, and Chapman had fought, you know, was sinking to the ground at the plate. So that's how the, the beaning came about. After Chapman's hit, uh, you know, players come to his side. They, they get him up and try to walk him off the field and uh, you know, get out to the, the clubhouse. And Ray is a little bit, he's, he's a little bit with it. He can get up uh, and walk a little bit, but then he just collapses and the players have to carry him back to uh, the clubhouse. And, you know, it's one of those situations where you hold your breath and you you hope the best. And later on, Tris Speaker, who a close friend of Ray Chapman, mentions his, uh, you know, he took a ball to the head. We mentioned that in the previous podcast during the World War One episode where he wasn't able to participate in the, the drilling on the field because he still had headaches. So at this point, no one knows, you know, what's going to happen to Ray Chapman. They just know it's serious and it doesn't look good. And to kind of sidebar a little bit, there's this 
ball uh, at a museum uh, down in Florida that they claim to be the death ball of of Ray Chapman. And again, as one of the interests of what I do, the the memorabilia and the material culture of of Cleveland Indians history, it's such a uh, unique story that is attached to this ball that um, in the museum world we call it provenance. The uh, the, the ownership of an item. So think about authentics and the authentication. If a ball goes into a stands, for example, as Dribble Cabrera threw the unassisted triple play ball into the stands after he had made the triple play, well, once it's in the stands, you can't authenticate it. If they throw it to someone who happened to have another ball in their pocket, you know, they could pull the other ball out and say, this is the ball. And it's just, you never know. So the story with Chapman's ball is that, Later on, there's a, a gentleman who has the ball, and he said, well, Charlie Jameson told me that players were crowded around Chapman, and they kept stepping on the ball, so Chapman put it, or Jameson put it in his back pocket, and long story short, threw it in his bag, and after the season was over, you know, I was like, oh, this is the ball, and then he ended up saving it, but as he got older, he's like, I don't want this, gave it to a sports writer who happened to be a, or actually it was to a youth baseball coach, and as the story goes, the coach needed a ball for his batting practice uh, with the, the kids. So they pulled it out of his glove compartment where it lived. And as they were taking like grounders, the ball, the first ball hit, bounces a few times and hits the kid and, you know, breaks his, his face or something along that nature. And this ball is cursed. So it's passed on to someone else. And, um, you know, it's just, it's such a far-fetched tale. And again, no one knew that Chapman was going to die. So why would, uh, would Jameson have held on to the ball? And the newspapers don't corroborate that. And, uh, you know, Mike and I talked a little bit about that and, you know, both kind of on the same page of it's a far-fetched story, but, you know, it's just, it'd be nearly impossible to prove that, that ball that is called the Chapman death ball is actually the ball um, just because there's so many strikes against it. Here, Mike goes into a little more detail. But the the reality is that, and, and this was covered in detail in the newspapers after that game, but the reality is that the, the ball hit the, I mean, after it hit Chapman, it went all the way back to the mound and that that was how I mean all the sports I saw it was very obvious, and it was thrown to Wally Pip at first base. So uh, when Mays and, and Pip realized what had happened, then Mays started complaining to the umpire that he should have thrown the ball out of play, and he was showing the ball to the umpire to show that it was too scuffed up to stay in the game, and he was essentially trying to put blame on the home plate umpire Tommy Connolly that it was his fault Chapman was beamed. Going back to the clubhouse, uh, apparently Ray may have been somewhat conscious. Uh, he was supposedly asking for his wedding ring or trying to talk to some of his teammates. And again, here's Mike. Well, according to the the coverage that that I had and, and uh, everything I found, he in the they got him to the clubhouse. And they had him lying on a table, and they they had called an ambulance, so the ambulance was coming. And he was conscious, and he was trying to speak, but he couldn't. 
and he saw the, the team trainer and he motioned him over and he kept pointing at his ring, Chapman kept pointing at his own ring finger. And he was, he, before every game, he would give his wedding ring to the trainer to keep during the game. And he was motioning uh, to the trainer because he wanted the, the wedding ring back. He wanted it put on his finger. So uh, Percy Smallwood, the, the trainer, placed the ring back on his finger and that, that brought Chapman a lot of relief. Uh, because and he was, according to uh, I believe it was Jack Graney, Chapman was able to whisper to him that uh, you know don't tell Kathleen, but if you do, tell her I'm all right. You know he didn't want his his wife to know about he'd been seriously hurt. So uh, I think he was conscious for a little while. But then he, he was unconscious on the ambulance ride. According to the, there was a former ball player who accompanied him to the hospital. I guess when they were placed, the, they, they rolled him into the hospital and he was on an elevator and he said something about there, there was no, not enough air in there. And so the, um, the ball player started fanning him to keep him cool. And, but apparently Chapman was somewhat conscious, but then he, became unconscious again and he never regained consciousness and he died shortly after uh, there was surgery on his skull to relieve the the pressure from the brain swelling up and he died overnight. During this time, Chapman's wife, the pregnant Kathleen, uh, is aware of what's going on but not sure of the seriousness so she hops on a train and goes to New York only to realize when she gets there that Ray had passed away. If you look at the plane dealer uh, from that period, from those days, it's just, you know, testaments to uh, Ray Chapman and what a guy he was. Uh, Like Mike mentioned earlier, like I mentioned earlier, that he was just such a nice person that fans loved him, that players loved him. He was a joy to be around and um, just a, a great person. So there was this tremendous amount of, of sadness and an outpouring of grief. And players, again, it goes to that whole um, question of was Mays trying to hit Chapman or was trying to brush him off? You know, Mays wasn't well liked by a lot of his teammates and even other players in, in baseball. So you have one of the nicest guys in baseball being hit by one of the most reviled guys in baseball, and it, it kind of can lead to a, a brouhaha, so to speak. And they, they went to Tris right away and said, do you think he tried to hit him? And Tris said, uh, no, I don't think he did. And later on, there's players that on the Indian team that never forgave Mays, that you know always held that he was headhunting and it was uh, uh, his fault for killing Ray. So uh, it actually led to um, you know, other teams uh, revolting as well, not wanting to play until Carl Mays was tossed out of the league. And again, the story on this is much deeper. So if you want to get into this part, again, it's in Mike's book. I, I highly suggest picking that up. And the house uh, the Dailies lived in, Chapman's body, was brought back from New York and it actually went to the, the house. Um, the house no longer stands, unfortunately. It's a vacant lot, but they were going to have the funeral, I believe, St. Philomena at first, but moved it to St. John on East 9th just because it was a much larger 
venue for the, the funeral because everyone wanted to be there. And again, there was, it was standing room only. Uh, after the funeral, it led to Lakeview Cemetery where Ray is buried today. But there's an interesting um, uh, discussion there is that Tris Speaker and Jack Graney both didn't make it to the funeral. In a previous interview with Scott Longer, uh, author of the book on the 1920 Indians, we spoke about this situation. And uh, apparently there was uh, – the newspaper said that the players were overwhelmed and they actually couldn't make it to the funeral. Um, you know, Jack Graney had to get out of town. But there actually was most likely a fight between Speaker Steve O'Neill and Jack Graney regarding uh, – you know, the possibility that Ray was going to convert to Catholicism and Speaker supposedly having this anti-Catholic um, uh, feeling. So more or less it came to blows. However, the newspaper uh, n- never ran with that. They just kind of, like I said, the players were, were overwhelmed. And Scott does a great job digging into that and believes wholeheartedly that that fight did happen. I believe he said he mentioned uh, he talked to Steve O'Neill's granddaughter who was aware of it. And here we have um, Mike was actually able to speak with someone who was was there and uh, he had had Wambi's take on it. Well, according to Dale Wamsgans, who was the only player on that team still living when I was researching and writing the book. And so I was able to talk to him. And he said that, you know, that they put out the story about them being too overcome uh, that, and they tried to deny the fight. But uh, uh, I think Wamscan's exact words were, we all knew damn well that they did fight. So I, I believe that is true, that they, that Speaker and Granny fought. And, and that's why they were unable to attend the funeral, because they, they did some damage to each other. There's the unanswered question, too, of why was Ray buried at Lakeview Cemetery? You know, has, he's got there's a family cemetery plot down south where his family's buried, or Daly family had, have plots in, in Calvary Cemetery, which is a, a Catholic cemetery. So Ray is buried in Lakeview and all by himself because the, the tragedy of the Chapman family, you know, continues not long after Ray dies is – his wife remarries. Uh, she has the baby, Ray's daughter, and uh, moves out to California, but eventually just is so distraught over everything years later, uh, commits suicide. Ray's daughter then is sent back to Cleveland where she uh, dies of sickness. I think she was eight years old or, or somewhere around there. So both of them are buried in Calvary Cemetery away from, from Ray. Fairly quickly after Ray's passing, uh, these groups come together to raise money to build a a memorial or monument in Ray's memory. So if you've ever been to our Heritage Park, you'll notice this tablet on the the bottom floor of our Heritage Park of Ray Chapman. And that was was created within the, the year of of his passing. So you can go out to Heritage Park and, you know, check that out and you could touch it if you like. It's it used to hang in League Park, and then when uh, they moved to Municipal Stadium, it supposedly was on one of the walls by one of the ticketing offices. I've never found a picture of it. I would love to actually find a picture of it hanging at Municipal Stadium, 
But as the story goes, when we moved to Progressive Field, they got lost in one of the uh, mechanical areas where they store everything and was uh, discovered in the late 2000s and uh, uh, refurbished and, and put back up. So you know, his memory is, is still with Cleveland fans, and it's one of the, I think, most visited grave sites in Lakeview. I mean, I have no statistics to back it up, but there's always baseballs and hats and uh, at his, his grave site. And that's the, the, I guess, cliff note version of the Ray Chapman uh, incident. Uh, as I mentioned before, great book, The Pitch That Killed, uh, real deep dive. It's been around for I think it's been 30 years, and uh, Scott's book also goes into great detail about the incident. But uh, again, Ray is still remembered in Cleveland. We're going to get to the 100th anniversary in a couple months. Um, so I'd, hopefully, if you have a chance, if you're uh, getting a little stir-crazy, you can take a trip to Lakeview and check out Ray's uh, tombstone. And that wraps up this episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I hope you'll join us next week when we start to look at the nuts and bolts of that 1920 season leading into the World Series. You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.